that really in the Bible? You live in a world where everyone has an opinion about the Bible. Of what values are your beliefs if they are not clearly found in the pages of your Bible? The question we must ask is, are your opinions and beliefs really found in the Bible? Well, hello, I'm David Freeman Webb. Is that really in the Bible? Have you ever heard of the concept of once saved, always saved? Well, I think if you've been in or exposed to religion very long at all, yes, you've heard of this concept. And might I add that it is a very convenient belief system. I mean, if I can just believe, look, all I got to do is just, you know, get myself saved. And then after that, I don't have to worry about it because once I'm saved, I will be forever saved. It is a convenient belief system to believe that. Uh, I suppose it's, it's what they refer to as the security of the believer. But is that what's really in your Bible? Does your Bible teach this? Now, first of all, we would, in order to answer the question, we would have to first ask the, another question, well, what does it mean to be saved? I mean, what, just what does it mean to be saved? Uh, if someone saved you from drowning, you know, you're in a river, the water's coming over your head, I think in that case we would understand what it meant to be saved. In other words, you would know what it meant. Because someone had just rescued you out of the water. And you would very much understand, okay, I have been saved from drowning. But what does it mean to be saved? Uh, saved from what? Let's ask the question. What are we saved from? Well, in the case of the person drowning, you are saved from the water, okay? And since we don't have gills like a fish, you know, we can't, we can't breathe underneath the water, okay, we have been saved. Okay, well, in the area of religion, we are saved from sin. Okay, that gives us a little bit more information, but what is sin? I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to know what sin is? If I'm going to be saved from this thing called sin, it would be a wise idea if I knew what sin was. Well, actually you can know. And the definition of sin is found in 1 John 3, 4 that tells us sin is the breaking of God's law. In other words, sin, it's the things, uh, it's the breaking of God's law, the Ten Commandments, but it really is the things that are destroying our lives. If, if we really want to know what God saves us from, they are the, it, it is the, the, the sins that is destroying our life. That's what God saves us from. That's what it would mean to be saved. Now, my view of salvation is that salvation is a process. Yes, a process. It's a process that begins the day that you go down under the, waters of, uh, under the water of baptism, that's the day salvation, the process of salvation begins. In other words, if you have, let's say, a 20-year addiction to, oh me, maybe you're a rageaholic. You've never been able to control your anger. Maybe you're addicted, maybe you're a womanizer. Maybe you're addicted to pornography or something like that. Well, it took a long time for that behavior pattern to get set up in your life. You didn't just walk into the world one day and all of a sudden you're addicted to pornography. 
He didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden you've got this alcohol addiction. He didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden you're a, you know, you're, 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 you've got this smoking addiction. No, it took years to develop that behavior pattern into your life. And so when God comes along and offers us salvation, it's not as though, it, it's really not, and I think this is what we're expecting sometimes. We expect that God, for God just to wave a magic wand over us and presto, change you no longer have that addiction. Now, am I denying that God could just take it away? Oh no, don't get ahead of me. I mean, I know God is all powerful and he could if he wanted to. He could just take that, let's say, addiction away. I actually, I heard of a story of a guy who was a smoker for about 20 years, and he said the day he was baptized, he threw his cigarettes away, he went down into the waters of baptism, and his exact words were, God took away the desire to smoke. I think that's incredible. But what I'm saying is, for the most part, this is not how God works. Now, you might ask, well, why? Why can't God just take it away? Well, it's because the overcoming process plays an important role in the Christian's life. In other words, God actually wants you to struggle with, and just like that, uh, that thing, that addiction was developed over a period of time, to be saved from it once you receive the God's Holy Spirit, it may take quite some time for you to overcome that. Overcoming, that is overcoming our destructive patterns in our lives, is a part of what God has planned for us. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying you never fail. And, you know, it's tough, it's tough. But there are things along the way God wants us to learn. It may be things like patience. It may be things like compassion for other people who are struggling with the same type of addiction. There's just a lot of lessons in the overcoming process that God wants us to learn. Okay. Now, I like to take really a, to look at salvation in a literal sense. You are literally being saved from something. In other words, there is something that you are literally being saved and delivered from. That's sort of how I look at salvation. And uh, it seems like most sinners are not literally, I mean, the, the fact is, most sinners are not literally saved from their sins when they go down into the waters of baptism. It is a process of overcoming. It is a struggle that goes on. And I sort of wish someone would have come along and explained this one to me when I was baptized. Because I really did. When I was baptized, I had sort of the approach that God was just going to take it away. In fact, that's what I asked for. Yeah, I really did. I said, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this commitment to you. I'm going to live the way you want me to live. I just got this one problem. It's me. You know, I, I've got these desires. I've got these ugly things that I like. And I'm asking you, Lord, just to take it away. That's what I wanted when I was baptized, and I, and I found out that the answer was no. No, I mean, I could. I could do that, God says. I could take it away, but I'm not. I'm not going to. So I wish someone would have come along and explain that salvation is a process <clears throat> to be saved from your sins. Just like the process that got you into it in the first place took many years, 
to develop those behavior patterns. It's going to take a process to get you out of that. In fact, salvation is a lifelong process where God is chipping away and working on you with the areas of things that he wants to perfect in your life. And it's possible, it's possible, but only through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. You can be a winner. You can overcome the things that is destroying your life. And what I have found is this. Only the diehard sinner understands his need to be saved from himself. That is, his sins. Not everybody understands this. In fact, what I have found is that it almost seems like most religious people come to God thinking... You know, they come down to that moment when they, maybe they go down to the altar or give their heart to the Lord. And they sort of come down to that point where they're thinking, you know, I'm really not that bad. I, I'm re- I mean, yeah, I've got a few little things that I know that needs working on, but I'm really not that bad. And that's why I say that only the die hard sinner can really understand what I'm saying. Only he can understand or she can understand their need for salvation. Only to die hard sinner. And like I said, I think most people come down to the altar thinking, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not really that bad, you know. You know I just sort of want to, I would like to get myself saved. Though. Now I want to look at Romans 5 and verse 6. It says this in Romans 5 and verse 6. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, don't overlook this scripture. This scripture tells you a lot, something that most religious people overlook. In other words, Christ died for a specific group of people. Okay, what group of people did Christ die for? They're called the ungodly. Now, if you're not ungodly, get this, if you're not ungodly, Jesus didn't die for you. Okay? Christ died. This scripture tells us. Let's let's take a look at it again because I know you're not wanting to believe this. Okay. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, that describes you if you're a diehard sinner, without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And again, I I just keep coming back to this concept of the person who goes down to the altar and really do not consider themselves to be ungodly. You know, they, they, they want to get themselves saved but, saved, but they sort of view themselves, well, you know, I've met a lot of people. Listen, I've met a lot of people who sort of viewed themselves as always being religious. I've always been a seeker after God. I've heard people tell me, you know, they, they say, well, I, I, I've sought after God since I was a child, a little girl. I, I really wanted to, I wanted to know God, and I've always loved God. And you know the problem with those people? problem is, is this. They have never identified themselves, nor are they able to identify themselves as ungodly. Now, ungodly is a bad word. I mean, it really is. I mean, you ever met people who are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthy good? I mean, they're just, they're just so heavenly minded. Oh, I just love God. And they are of no earthly good. <laughs> Look, what I'm saying is you've got to be a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner in order to even come to God. That's what you first got to realize you are. 
a dirty, a rotten, filthy human being. And I'm just, I'm sort of convinced that most people don't come to God with that mindset. That's, that's my opinion. Now, I think most people confuse justification with salvation. We're talking about the subject of once saved, always saved, and people thinking that, you know, I'm once saved, I'm always saved, and and this is the subject that we're talking about. And I think most people confuse justification with salvation. Justification is a $2 word that basically means being made right with God. And they confuse the two. They think being made right and salvation is the same thing. What's well, not? Let's look at Romans 3 and verse 24. It says this, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus... Now, what are we talking about here? We're talking about at the point of baptism, you are justified. You are made right. Okay, well, how does that occur? What happens when you're baptized? Next verse, Romans 3 and verse 25. Whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Did you catch that? At baptism, what sins did God forgive you of? Well, your past sins. That's really the only sins he can forgive you of at that moment. Your past. In other words, at, when you come up out of the waters of baptism, you, the slate is wiped clean. Washed, you're clean, like the driven snow. And your past is behind you. You have been forgiven for the forgiveness of sins that are past. Okay. Well, what about the sins you commit tomorrow? Well, this is where God's grace comes in at. I mean, the the forgiving grace of God on a continuous basis. And again, that's why I say salvation is a process. Because you're going to, after you're baptized, you will sin again. Okay. And so since that's in the future, we have to look at this as salvation is an ongoing process. Now, I've heard way too many people, a lot of people have this superficial idea. Well, God knows everything. He knows everything I'm going to do tomorrow. He knows everything I'm going to do in the next five minutes. He knows every sin I'm going to commit. Listen, God doesn't know what you're going to do until you do it. You need to get over this, this idea that God is just sort of, he knows every decision, every step I'm going to make. Listen, you don't even know what you're going to do 30 minutes from now. Why would you think God knows what you're going to do 30 minutes from now? Listen, there's a thing called free moral agency. That's the way God created you. He created us free to choose. And he sort of takes a hands-off approach in that process. And he watches and he looks and he, he observes what, what we're going to do. And it's really not until you do it, until the decision is made and you head off in this direction or that direction. And God says, oh, okay, he's going in that direction. I'm going to have to tweak that a little bit. It's the wrong way, by the way. Or he looks and, oh, okay, he's going to make that decision. That's a good decision. You see. And a lot of people like to deny this, that we are, that God has created us a free moral agent with the ability to choose right from wrong. And there's only one reason you'd want to deny that fact, that reality. It's because you don't want to personally take responsibility for your actions. That's the only reason you would deny that you are a free moral agent with the ability to choose right from wrong. That's, what, that's the way God made, made you, made me. 
You ever thought about this question? Why did God put two trees in the garden? You know, there was two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, okay, you can eat of that tree, but don't you touch that tree. Now think about it. If God didn't want us to take of that forbidden fruit, tree, whatever it is, why did he put it there? I mean, me, my logic is, okay, if I don't want you to take of something, just don't put it there. So why did he put it there? The answer is so obvious. He wants us to choose, and he wants us to, he watches and considers our choices. The choice that you're going to make. We are a free moral agent with the ability to choose. That's the way God made, made you. And then again, this is another reason why I believe salvation is a process. Because God looks at the choices that we make and he considers each choice. So let's see. Once saved, always saved. Mm, and the only way you could, could really be is if you didn't have the ability to choose. Uh, if you were programmed like a robot, I would agree, yeah, you could probably once save, always save. But you're, you're not a robot. You know that, don't you? No, no, you're not. Now, the real question is not so much once saved, always saved. The real question is this. Can a man lose, or a woman, lose the Spirit of God? That's the real question. That's the real question. Because the Bible answers that question. Can a person lose the Spirit of God? Romans 8 and verse 9 says this. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a big if. If the Spirit of God dwells in you. And there's a specific way to receive the Spirit of God. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So what identifies a Christian? Well, what identifies a Christian is whether that person has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling on the inside. Now, what does it mean to receive the Spirit of God? Well, it's something, first of all, you've got to realize that you're an ungodly person. You're a filthy, rotten, dirty sinner. And when you realize that, and that's a miracle for God to even lead you to that point. It really is. But when you come to that point, you accept Christ. First, first of all, you ask for repentance. You accept Christ as your personal Savior. Uh, you repent of your sins. You go down in the waters of baptism, and you come up out of the water, and, uh, and they lay hands on you, and... At that moment, they ask God to give you a portion of His Holy Spirit. Now, if you are sincere, at that moment is what I call the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, the salvation process begins. In other words, at that moment of conception, God's Spirit unites with your spirit. There is a spirit in man. It's what makes you you. It's what makes me me. It's what makes us unique and different. Okay, at the moment of conception... A new creature in Christ starts to develop right up here. It has a lot to do with the way you think, you know. Decisions that you make. Uh oh, decisions that you make from that point forward. Now, can a person lose the Spirit of God? Well, yes, of course. The Bible clearly reveals that. But how? Well, how? How do you lose the Spirit? Well, that too is a process. Believe it or not, that too is a process. In 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14, I want to look at a man who, who actually lost the Spirit of God. His name was Saul. This verse, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14, says this, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, 
And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. You know, God gives and God can take away his spirit. After all, it's his spirit. And who are we to say, Lord, you can't take that away from me. I dare you to take that away. Well, look, it's his spirit. Okay, first of all, it's God's spirit. And he can give it and he can take it away. All right. Now, why did God take his spirit away from Saul? Bottom line, the man couldn't follow instructions. He just couldn't follow orders. I mean, God would tell him to do something, and he'd just he'd mess it up every time. He just would not follow instructions. Okay? In fact, in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22, tells us the story. After he had messed up, and Samuel said, Samuel the prophet says to Saul, he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken, that is listen, than the fat of rams. I mean, the bottom line is, Saul was just flat out right disobedient. He didn't obey the voice of the Lord thy God. And this scripture is interesting because it sort of reveals that, you know, it says that it talks about his sacrifices and his offerings. You know, it, to me, that's the, that's the churchianity part. He, he was involved in going to the temple and giving sacrifices and offering sacrifice. He was, he was involved in all the ritualistic, you know, the, the churchianity. He just had one problem. He, he couldn't follow orders. He didn't obey God. And God took his spirit back. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. Psalms 51 and verse 11. Now, this is a story of David. David had sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just his, it was a gross sin. First of all, it was at the time when kings go to war. Well, he wasn't at war. He got up from off his bed late in the evening. He'd been sleeping all day. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing and he takes her and has sex with her. She gets pregnant. Then he kills the woman's husband to cover up his sin. Oh man, David was in the process. And there's the word process of hardening his heart. Hardening his heart. Hardening his heart. Refusing correction. Refusing, grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Well, finally, David comes around. And David says this in Psalms 51 and verse 11. He says to God, after he had repented, he said, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Listen, listen, there is nothing more evil than feeling, than not feeling remorse for your sins. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how it happened. The hardening of the heart is a process. And we are in America, we are consumers of God's grace. We just consume it. Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me. I'm sinned again. I'm, I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. And over a period of time, there is this process of the hardening of the heart. And we come to a point, I believe, where we no longer even feel that, that we, can, we can do the thing that we know is wrong and not even feel remorse for that decision. I tell you, when you get in that predicament, you are on dangerous ground when you no longer feel sorry, you no longer feel remorse, and it's just so easy to go to God's throne and say, forgive me, Lord, I messed up again. 
And this idea of an evil spirit taking over is troubling to me because, as I said, there is nothing more evil than not feeling remorse for one's sin. And it's possible through a process of hardening the heart for God's spirit to abandon ship. Acts 5 verse 32 tells us this. It says, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to them that obey him. Yeah, God gives his spirit to those that obey him. Listen, Saul lost the Holy Spirit because he didn't obey. David begged God, don't take it away because of his disobedience. And, you know, again, I got this feeling that most religious people think obedience is just not that important. It's just not that. I'm just a consumer of God's grace. I'll just go again. I don't feel a bit of remorse for what I just did. I'm going to ask for forgiveness again. You are on dangerous ground. Now, you might ask, well, how do you know all about this? Well, <laughs> I don't care to tell you about all that. But, you know, there, you, there's a thing called experience, okay? All right. <clears throat> Listen, does God want to spend eternity with a pack of rebels? Of course not. Would you? No, obedience is important. Is it really true, once saved, always saved? Can you lose your salvation? Can you lose the Spirit of God? You know, not only can you lose it, it gets even worse than that. It really does. I mean, we're all familiar with grieving the Holy Spirit, are we not? We're all familiar with grieving the Holy Spirit, what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, again, this is a process that goes on of just grieving the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at, I ask, can you lose the Spirit of God? I said yes, but it gets even much worse than that. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Let's take a look at this. It says, know, it says, know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, now consider this. Your body is a temple, and it was made for a specific reason. Do you know what your body was made for? It was made to house the Spirit of God. Okay? Remember we talked about at the point of baptism, lay hands on you, and we ask God to give you a portion of His Spirit, and there's a moment of conception where God's Spirit unites with your Spirit, and a new creature in Christ starts to to develop. Okay. All right. That's what your body was made for, to house the Spirit of God. And without it, you are incomplete. You're only half the person you're supposed to be. And you will go through your life, and you will die thinking, man, I'm missing something. Yes, you are. Spirit of God. That's what you're missing. So your body is the temple of God. Okay. Notice this next verse, verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's God is going to destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Listen, folks. It's time we Christians... Start taking the subject of sin a little more seriously. You can grieve and ultimately lose the Spirit of God. The Spirit can abandon ship. And that's what's really in your Bible. Is it possible for you to change a desire that you know is wrong? Is it even possible to change the man or woman in the mirror? And if so, how? 
Are we simply stuck with our emotions, feelings, bad habits, with no hope of ever rising above them? Your Bible says God gives His Holy Spirit to them that obey Him, which means change is possible. Learn the step-by-step process for receiving the Spirit of God. Order your two free magazines, Why You Need the Spirit of God and Should You Be Baptized. Having the Spirit of God makes the impossible possible. Order by writing to Church of God, Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. That's Church of God, Rocky Mount, 27 Brookledge Lane, Rocky Mount, Virginia, 24151. Also, check us out on the web at isthatreallyinthebible.com.